The reason companies do these unbranded campaigns is that there are very strict regulations for drug ads themselves. In an awareness campaign that's just about a disease, they don't have to follow those FDA rules. That's Tracy Staten, our editor-in-chief, talking about Fierce's special report on pharma's top marketing spenders of 2021. No doubt that the pandemic impacted those numbers as well. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Life Sciences. Today is April 29th. We're here every Friday morning, so stick with us. We've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. Last year, as the public made Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and Moderna household names, pharmaceutical companies took their cue. The growth in branded advertising went flat, while the growth in awareness campaigns grew a lot. We'll hear more on that later, but first, this week's news. Here's what you need to know. I'm Fraser Kansteiner. Pfizer is recalling some batches of its blood pressure drug Acupril. The reason? They found high levels of an impurity that can cause cancer. It's Pfizer's third carcinogen-related recall in three months. The first two were also for blood pressure drugs. In all three recalls, nitrosamines were responsible. Nitrosamines are found in nature, but they are also a byproduct of the manufacturing process. The recall was a voluntary move by Pfizer. They announced on their website that they had not received any safety reports related to the Acupro recall, adding that there is no immediate risk to patients taking this medication. Meanwhile, Pfizer is on a roll. Last month, they recalled all batches of their blood pressure drug Acuretic in Canada, and in February, they recalled 15 lots of Enderol. Nitrosamines were also behind Pfizer's sweeping recall of the smoking cessation drug Chantix last year. While Pfizer is the latest company hit with nitrosamine concerns, it surely won't be the last. I'm Annalie Armstrong. Rarely does the FDA catch a Hail Mary in the final minutes. But luckily for our Delics, someone at the agency was in their corner. Last year, the FDA rejected our Delics' application for the kidney disease drug Tenopaner. Then they rejected an appeal in February. Now our Delics is giving it a third try with yet another appeal. And the FDA is listening. They've agreed to have a panel of experts review the application after the second appeal. So what was holding up the FDA? They want another study to confirm the phosphate-lowering effects of Tenopaner which the agency said is small and of unclear clinical significance. Through this process, the FDA will hear from clinicians who've been eager to access the therapy. Ardelix is hoping the input from scientists will help it avoid conducting another costly and time-consuming trial. The company really needs to get this application moving, as cash resources have dwindled to about $160 million as of the end of 2021. So will the panel help change the FDA's mind? Or is the agency simply delaying the inevitable rejection? We'll find out within 30 days of the meeting, which is yet to be scheduled. Wednesday, Merck revealed that it's losing another longtime executive. On May 31st, Arpa Garay, currently Merck's global human health marketing lead, will jump ship. Garay's new position will be as chief commercial officer at Moderna. Garay has been at Merck for 16 years. Over that stretch, she's helped manage aspects of the company's business in oncology, vaccines, specialty, and chronic care. Prior to being promoted to marketing chief, Garay was president of global oncology and digital at Merck. Merck C-Suite is currently undergoing a lot of change. Many executives have left the company or switched roles. I'm Max Baer. You know the saying, money can't buy happiness? Well, it also can't buy clinical success. 
That's the tough pill Nectar Therapeutics had to swallow after a four-year-old licensing deal went up in flames. The deal was with Bristol-Myers Squibb, and it was worth up to $3.6 billion. Ultimately, Nectar had to cut roughly 70% of its workforce. The company hinted at reorganizing a month ago when Bempeg, its most developed asset, failed in the clinic. It was its final strike after previous trials. Even after the Bristol-Myers Squibb deal crumbled, the company still indicated it had an opportunity for additional partnerships, albeit with assets that are still quite young. Luckily for Nectar, it has a sizable war chest to fund its next chapter to the tune of $700 million in cash and investments. I'm James Waldron. The results are in and it is looking good for Eli Lilly. Its latest trial for the investigational diabetes and obesity drug terzepatide suggests that it reduces patient weight not only for people with diabetes, but also those without the condition. The study looked at obese or overweight adults who have at least one comorbidity, but don't have diabetes. Between 89% and 96% of participants taking Lilly's terzepatide saw their body weight drop by 5% or more over a 72-week period. In comparison, Movonordis' semaglutide, which is marketed as a Zempic for diabetes and Wegovi for obesity, has been shown to cause a similar loss of body weight among 86% participants. While trying to compare separate trials is always risky, the available clinical data does suggest that tazepatide has a shot at disrupting the obesity market and causing a headache for Novo Nordis. I'm Connor Hale. Abbott is looking to have its wearable glucose monitor work as part of a full-fledged artificial pancreas system for people with diabetes. In collaboration with the Switzerland-based Ipsomed, Abbott's Freestyle Libre sensor will supply real-time blood sugar data to the company's smart insulin pump. Meanwhile, a startup out of the University of Cambridge will provide its smartphone app to help coordinate the two devices. CamDiab and its adaptive software aim to help control type 1 diabetes by tracking blood sugar levels and automatically adjusting insulin doses to keep the user within a healthy range. Ipsomed's pump, CamDiab's app, and Abbott's latest glucose sensor have all been approved in Europe already, and the companies say they can get them to work together before the end of the year. The CEO of Novartis created a new position overseeing the company's corporate strategy. Then, they hired a high-profile Wall Street analyst to take the lead. Here to talk more about that is senior editor Eric Saganowski and senior staff writer Angus Liu. We're going to talk about the surprising news that Ronnie Gal is joining Novartis as chief strategy and growth officer. Ronnie was a Bernstein analyst for many years. So, Angus, tell me, what do you think he brings to Novartis? Thanks, Eric. As I mentioned in my story about Ronnie's appointment, he has offered some of the most insightful analysis in the biopharma sector. He has deep knowledge across a wide range of topics. If we go back to our archive, we can see past stories of drug pricing, biosimilars, companies' M&A moves, and dynamics across various therapeutic areas. The most memorable one that I've written about based off Ronnie's note is this open letter he wrote to Regeneral CEO Len Schleifer asking him to lower the tires uh, price before Chinese PD-1 developers do. The interesting thing about that is now Novartis is partnered with Beijing on the PD-1 inhibitor to slandesimab. So I think it'd be interesting to watch 
of Ronnie's influence there, given partnership and corporate strategy written in his job description. So overall, I think Ronnie does bring valuable because he has never taken any job within the biopharmaceutical industry. He has watching this whole process from a distance. Yeah, and I'll just add that during my reporting on the drug pricing issue, Ronnie had some really deep analysis that I don't think anybody had. So like you said, it'll be interesting to see where what Novartis does with drug pricing. Elsewhere in the industry, a few other companies that we follow are, are appearing to look at M&A. One of them is Pfizer with their CFO hire. Can you tell me about that story and what it means for Pfizer? Sure. So Pfizer recently hired a new CFO from Lowe's, but the CFO's background in steering the big mega merger between CVS and Aetna really got people's attention because people are now guessing that Pfizer uh, might be on the lookout for potential big M&A. So I think the message to biotechs is just get your pitches ready and uh, knock on Pfizer's door. Yeah, it's interesting. All these companies uh, seem to be looking at M&A, but they're acting the other way. They're spinning off parts of their business. Novartis is looking at spinning off Sandons potentially. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. From the big picture, what do you think the M&A landscape looks like? Depressing, actually. We've seen some collaborations and partnerships. Basically, companies are mitigating the risks, spreading them out over milestones compared with a straight out acquisition. We've seen Samsung buying out Biogen's stake in their biosimilar joint venture. And we see Biocon buy the biosimilar franchise from Beatrice. So I think generally speaking, companies are still looking for deals, but they are more cautious with what they are going after. So what about you, Eric? What's your perspective on the M&A landscape? I agree that it seems highly uncertain right now. We've reported earlier in the year that we know the pharma companies have money to do deals, Pfizer in particular, with all of their COVID cash. But to me, it seems like they're avoiding risks right now. Companies are scouting for the next big therapeutic area. mRNA might be that. There's a lot of sitting on the sidelines right now, I think, and focusing on internal research and licensing deals, like you said. So we'll just have to see which company is confident enough to spend its money on a big deal, if any, I'm not sure that'll come this year. Like you said, many big pharma companies are still on the sidelines of the fence these days, just watching how the market grows. And I think the recent fluctuations in COVID situations might also contribute a little bit to the lagging situation in biopharma M&As. Yeah, and it's still early in earnings season, so we're going to get more clues in the next couple of weeks about what these companies are thinking. The pandemic has had a huge effect on how pharma spent its marketing budget. This week, pharma released a special report revealing who the top spenders were and how they were spending. Spending on direct-to-consumer branded drug ads only dropped slightly, but spending on unbranded campaigns went through the roof. Here is Editor-in-Chief Tracy Staten with Senior Editor Ben Adams to take a closer look at the shift in marketing priorities. Every year we like to look back at what pharma companies are spending their money on um, in terms of marketing and advertising. So we've tried to split that this year into two. We've got the top five on what they're spending, predominantly on TV ads, but it does go beyond that. And that list has been pretty much dominated by AbbVie's immunology drug, Humira. That drug makes around $20 billion a year, and pre-COVID that was the biggest selling drug in the world. That's actually been displaced this year by Sanofi and Regeneron's Dupexent. 
That's also an immunology job. Does not have anywhere near the amount of labels as Humira does, but it's trying to get up there. Is it ever going to make 20 billion? Probably not, but it won't be that far off. And in fact, of the top five, three of them are immunology drugs and two are diabetes drugs. Now, Tracy, I think that's interesting because immunology is obviously a huge market and there's so many labels there, but diabetes has always been pretty set. It's type two diabetics have to lower their blood sugar levels. But I think one of the things we're seeing more now is about going beyond that. There's been a lot of competition joining the market over the last five or so years between Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk specifically, mm. and Novo Nordisk has Ribelsis. And then Eli Lilly has Trulicity, which is also on our list. There's also the fact that in diabetes, they've tried to move beyond the FDA approvals simply for lowering blood sugar and focus on weight loss and the ability of these drugs to help people's cardiovascular health, kidney health, the sorts of disorders that people with diabetes are at high risk of developing. Ribelsis coming in second, almost out of nowhere, is pretty interesting. The ingredient for Ribelsis is pretty much the same, well, it is the exact same, just comes in a different package, basically, in the way that it's used. So that's an oral version of Samalgatide, which is the ingredient Novo Nordis has as an entire franchise. It also has a Zempic, which is a, an injected form of a Ribelsis, and it also has Wegovi which is specific for weight loss. Well, what it's decided to do is clearly throw so much of its advertising spend behind Ribelsis. And actually recently we did a story about uh, a new TV spot that they've put out where they're focusing on switching. So in diabetes, generally, if your doctor's quite happy with the drug that you're on, they don't really want to switch you. They know what you're doing. They know your blood sugar levels are stable. But putting you on a different drug, the concern is maybe your blood sugar levels are going to change. But what Ribelsis is saying, hey, we're pretty good. We can... You can lower your blood sugar levels better than quote unquote other competitors. So it's worth switching, in other words. Yeah, so it's worth switching. That reminded me of Humira and Rinvok. The reason that Humira has dropped is because AbbVie has specifically decided that it wants to divert its marketing dollars toward its newer drugs. So Humira will be having a biosimilar competition starting next year, and Rinvok is relatively new. AbbVie wanted to put its ad budget behind the new drug that's going to be on patent and without biosimilar competition for a long time versus Humira, which is going to have that biosimilar competition next year. Yeah. And Rinvok came in fourth and its other follow-up, Skyrizi, is typically in the top 10 when it comes to TV advertising specifically. But it does have that challenge with Rinvok in that being a JAK inhibitor is one of these classes which has come under FDA and European scrutiny for safety worries, specifically for heart conditions, if I remember correctly. So let's talk about Dupixent. It's number one. Last year, the most money that they spent on was something called Hide Our Skin, Not Us. This was focused specifically on eczema, of course, and it was on a pair of adolescent swimmers that were proudly displaying these red marks that had been disappearing on their legs. Why hide your skin if Dupixent has your moderate to severe eczema or atopic dermatitis under control? Hide my skin? Not me. By hitting eczema where it counts, Dupixent helps heal your skin from within. So to me, it's the eczema one they're going for. However, they are this year, I believe, chasing a fourth nod in a specific kind of esophagitis. So this is something that, that makes eating and swallowing incredibly difficult. And if they manage to get that FDA approval this year, then that'll be its fourth label. And I'm suspecting that they're going to start advertising pretty hard on that. In terms of the unbranded campaigns, one thing that was interesting to note was the corporate image 
work that we're seeing as at the top of the list with Abbott being number one. And then we have Pfizer and Lilly each having some image campaigns. The top five, they're an eclectic mix of unbranded sort of awareness campaigns rather than these kind of DTC branded things. The reason companies do these unbranded campaigns is that there are very strict regulations for drug ads themselves. So if you're advertising a drug brand, it has to follow a very detailed set of rules. It has to have all those side effect listings that everyone makes fun of all the time. And it has to balance out its uh, discussion of the benefits of the drug versus the risks of the drug. And in an awareness campaign that's just about a disease, they don't have to follow those FDA rules. That's funny for me being in Europe because we can't have any branded DTC adverts. We only have awareness campaigns. So that's that's the only way I'd experience any kind of drugs or companies is through awareness campaigns. Who the companies are and who leads them isn't particularly important. They're brand first. So you'll know Viagra and Lipitor. You might not know Pfizer. You might not know who Jeff Kindler was, but you definitely know the brands and that's how they liked it. It's easier to put your brands first and keep the corporation quietly plugging on in the background. That really changed with the pandemic and especially for the, the companies that were kind of forefront of that. So that is Abbott with their COVID tests. That is Pfizer with its Paxlovid treatment now and with its Cominati vaccine that it made with BioNTech. And Lily as well did have a treatment out for COVID. Lily last year, for the first time ever, sponsored the Olympics, the Tokyo Games. But instead of going all in on brands, it realized it needed to talk more about itself. And you see this with tech companies. A lot of people buy Apple products because they like Apple. And, and Lily is starting to see that maybe people will use Lily's brands because they like Lily. And I spoke to Pfizer CEO quite recently who said, in essence, the same thing, that if you can get behind a Pfizer brand, then that makes it more easy to sell. If you know the company and the CEO, and he's recently written a book talking about how great <laughs> Pfizer is and how they help save the world, which again is incredibly unusual for pharma. This was not something that pharma drove necessarily. Drug makers were not pushing the idea of the Pfizer shot and the Moderna shot and the J&J shot. That happened like an upswell among the public. And because the public started talking about the Pfizer shot, the J&J shot, we didn't the Moderna have shot, and then we had the emergency use authorizations, mm. which do not authorize the company to market a product. They only allow the company to sell it. And you only get a brand name when you get FDA approval, typically. So there weren't any brand names to throw around, like you said. So the public was talking about the Pfizer shot and the Moderna shot, etc. That changed the way people thought about drug companies, and it raised the profile of pharma overall. The Harris Poll has found increases in overall reputation of the industry improving as pharma was working on vaccines and treatments. And then later on showed that, that this particular success of a vaccine or not seemed to reflect on the company's overall reputation. So this is coming from the public. And now uh, pharma is in a way reacting to that by taking that idea and doing more image advertising. Yeah, and, uh, and we spoke to Lily last year during its Olympic campaign, and they said specifically, pharma brand preference is being formed today in front of our eyes. Whether we do anything or not, people are deciding what vaccine to take based on what their belief is about a certain pharma company. 
That was not the case 10 years ago. It's interesting to see the companies that are jumping on board with that. Pfizer definitely is. Its Science Will Win campaign was actually created before the pandemic. And then when COVID hit, it shifted that awareness push to how science will win over a pandemic. And it's still plugging away at that two years later. Clearly, the Pfizer CEO is very aware of the reputational boost that Pfizer has had and is hoping to ride the wave of that going forward. And this week, the buzz around the Fierce newsroom is that Fierce Life Sciences finally let the team out of the cage. They sent senior staff writer Fraser Kansteiner to the first in-person event since the pandemic. Hey, Fraser, how did it feel to stretch your legs? You know, it definitely felt like everyone was kind of adjusting after the pandemic, kind of getting used to doing one of these award ceremonies again. I'm sure. It probably felt strange after two years on Zoom. So. Tell me again, what were the awards for? It was the ASBEs, which is the American Society of Business Publication Editors. And it was the it was like the New England Northeastern Regionals. What's that? Yeah, it's a it's an association of uh, like editors, writers and other people in business, business journalism. So basically it was just a recognition of being uh, like a really strong voice in uh, industries. Mm, well, it's it's only my second week on the job, but I heard that I joined a winning team. Uh, yeah, we did quite well, actually. So Fierce Pharma and Fierce Biotech each uh, won three awards apiece. Awesome. Some bragging rights for Fierce Life Sciences. We did get some nifty digital badges that we can display on, I believe, LinkedIn that show that we're ASB winners. Yeah, but what I really want to know is, did you enjoy the event? Yeah, so the so award ceremony was in Norwalk, Connecticut. And it was, uh, interestingly enough, a bar slash bocce ball court slash bowling alley. Oh, wow. So follow wow. the award ceremony. Uh, there was bowling and networking <laughs> for me and Law360 and, and all of the other business journalists. I went with my uh, girlfriend. She drove me. So it was funny because I showed up and people were like, ah, do you work with this person? And I was like, no, I brought my girlfriend. Don't put this in the podcast, but it's funny. <laughs> Don't worry. It made me feel silly that I had to be chauffeured. That's it for The Top Line. I'm senior producer Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. Check us out on Twitter at Fierce Biotech or on the web at Fierce Pharma and FiercePharma.com. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.